My next guest gets to sit in rooms with world leaders and witness firsthand how policy is enacted on a variety of important issues facing the world. She is the head of communications for the UN 75 initiative. Please welcome Lisa Lascaritas. Hi, Lisa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to be here and very honored. Thank you. Thank you. And we're honored to have you. Thank you so much for, for being here. It's really fantastic. So I always begin the show, the conversation with the question, what do you believe? Well, Andrea, mm. something, um, something that steers me in life is my um, belief in courage. Um, I believe in, in courage as, as a driving force, as a mean to better ourselves, um, and as an agent for, for positive change. Now, positive change, of course, can arise from many different things like desperation or necessity or a crisis um, like we're in right now. But a lot of the times, um, positive change derives from someone being courageous. And it can be fighting for something you believe in. It could be standing up for someone, speaking up, dare to do things differently, to break the norm. Um, and I think this is also true on an individual um, and personal level where it takes courage to be true to yourself, right? And it takes courage to believe in yourself and to believe in others. It takes courage to say, I'm sorry, and to admit that you're wrong. Um, and it takes courage to grow, because growing can be painful. Um, and I'm certainly not saying that I'm always brave uh, in my decisions or actions, but I try to keep in mind that when we act with courage, uh, it can have a great impact uh, on our lives and, and others. And um, I believe every little action of the common day uh, makes or unmakes character and that we are built of, we're built of everything we do, right? Um, and when we're brave enough to venture out of our comfort zones, that's when the amazing stuff happens. And, and I think life uh, shrinks or, or expands, you know, in proportion to one's courage. That is beautiful. Wow. That is, that really is exactly what needs to be said right now in this time of COVID and everything that people are going through. How have you found, um, how have you found it? I mean, in terms of, you know, digging deep and finding that courage um, to sort of get over the day-to-day, -day, the groundhog day. You mean right now in the situation uh, in general? Yeah. Um, well, it's been a journey and it's been, I mean, definitely had my, up, my ups and downs, but I've been trying, I mean, obviously to keep really close uh, in connection with my family who I miss very much and even more when you know that you know i know that i can't travel to see them um but i in sweden yes you're swedish they're in sweden and i have some family in norway and greece um, as well but everyone's fine so i'm so i'm very grateful for that mm -hmm. um and i've just been trying to to build a routine that works for me uh here at home in my small studio in house kitchen um and you know, I've been lucky enough to have, to be healthy and, and to have the luxury, I guess, to create some new, uh, some new patterns and some new routines for myself. 
um, and spending a lot of time, uh, you know, in my own head, even more than than usual. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I guess um, those are some of the things that have helped me. And I dance a lot. Um, that's something that makes me happy. I put on my headphones and I have this dance list that it's like impossible not to move to. Right. So, so even and especially if I'm down or you know upset or anxious or exhausted, whatever it may be, and I just want to lay on the floor and eat chocolate, um, then I like just force myself to put on that party list and and yeah, and I start dancing and it instantly makes me feel um, a lot happier. Amazing! Wow, <laughs> thank you. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, I, I I agree. I think it's dancing. It's just pure joy, isn't it? I mean, it's it's just a joyful experience. So it instantly can get you out of your head and into your heart. And and yeah, and that's I'm I'm going to take that cue and do the same thing. So thank you for that. Um, I mean, I I'm just so fascinated by. I've always been fascinated by the UN and and. And, you know, since I was a kid and I, I went there on a school trip, you know, probably, I don't know, in the third or fourth grade. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, could, if you could shed some light for those who may not know or may not understand, you know, the UN's role in policy. Could you just explain for those who may not understand how it works? Of course. Um, so the UN, uh, and I'm the biggest UN nerd, so, you know, tell me to stop if, if, I, if I don't, if I talk too much about the UN. Um, but the, the aim of the UN system um, is, you know, to maintain uh, international peace and security. Uh, and we do this through, I mean, prevent, pr to prevent conflict, uh, to uh, peacekeeping and also peace building after a conflict has taken place. So uh, international peace security uh, to the UN works to protect human rights, uh, to deliver humanitarian aid, to promote sustainable uh, development. And here we have, you know, the sustainable development goals as our common roadmap uh, to a sustainable future um, and to uphold international law. And, and then we have, and the UN is huge, you know, with, with so many different programs and funds and agencies and, and bodies, um, but then we have also the UN Security Council with the primary responsibility for international peace security. Mm -hmm. So any situation, uh, conflict around the world that could be a threat to international peace security ends up on the UN Security Council's agenda. And the UN Security Council is the only body um, in, the, in the United Nations with the authority to issue binding resolutions to member states, which means that when the Security Council passes a resolution, it becomes international law and everyone has to follow. Um, and I think it's also important to remember that the UN uh, is not it's easy to look at the UN like it's something over there and it's, it's something blurry, uh, but the UN is not an entity in itself. The UN is in fact the 193 member states that it consists of. So it's, it's the member states, I mean, it is us that decides what the UN will do and want to. Um, and it's not an easy task, of course, to get 
every country in the world to agree on anything, you know, to be frank. Uh, but this is this is the only forum we have for this. Uh, this is the only place where we have the 193 countries uh, together around the same table to discuss, you know, solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and I also want to throw in a quote here because I um, so this is a quote that I like, and it's a quote by Dag Hammarskjöld, which was the second Secretary General of the UN. And he said, the UN, maybe you saw this on your tour, because it's on the wall. Uh, he said, the UN was not created to take mankind to heaven, but to save humanity from hell. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, that's just... <laughs> That's that's beautiful. So, but you see, your reaction right there to that quote is, I feel, speaks to you as to why you actually work for the UN. And I want to hear from you what inspired you to work for the UN. That's a good question. Um, I think, I think. There has been two. Uh, there have been two defining moments um, in my in my life and my career that took me here to to New York and to the UN. Um, the first one was uh, when I was traveling after high school, uh, and I spent six months in in Southeast Asia, and I was a few months in India, and and it just changed my perspective and and opened my eyes to uh, inequality. Um, and, and it's one thing to see it on TV and to read about it. And of course, you're aware of it, but it's quite a different uh, thing to see it firsthand. Um, and this is when I first realized that I wanted to work with something that could have a positive impact on other people's lives. And I guess I just came back this humanitarian that wanted to make a difference and wanted to do my small part to to better this world um, and improve the lives of others. So that was the first defining moment. And that, of course, made me move to Australia to study. Um, so I figured if I want to work internationally, uh, I should also study, you know, international, make sure my English are you know, as good as could be. So I moved to Melbourne and I did my master's there in international relations. And then um, I think this was another defining moment when I started working with a small NGO, um, an amazing NGO uh, called the Asylum Seeker Resource Center in Melbourne. And I was working in their uh, detention program. So I was visiting uh, refugees and asylum seekers that were locked in, you know, waiting to hear if they were allowed to stay. Um, and, and the conditions there were, were, um, were horrible. And there were a lot of suicides and you see people's hair just turn gray and it's just uh, awful. Um, but this, this job had a huge impact on me. I mean, the people I got to know there, the stories they told me, um, and also realizing that you, just by being someone's friend, uh, you can make such a big, big difference um, in the situation they're in. And so this was tough on the heart, but very rewarding. And I started to, th I think it was here, I started to think about the UN for real and and wanting to be a part of a system that made an impact on, on the larger scale. Mm. Uh, and then of course, I also wrote endless of essays about the UN, mostly how not effective it was, you know, as you do in university. 
but that just made me want to go there even more. Yes. So seeing, so actually seeing, um, having these experiences um, really inspired you to, to go and do something about it. And, and I love what you said about what you believe is in, is having courage. And it, it sounds like that's, you, 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 you got the courage from seeing to, to go and ahead and, and do something about it and represent people who are in need um, and, and use your voice in a courageous way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean trying to do anyway. Well, you're doing it. You're definitely <laughs> doing it. Um, so in terms of the UN 75 initiative, um, that you're head of communications for. Could you can you just shed some light on on what what it is and what you're doing with with yes, that? I would love to. I thought you never ask. Oh. <laughs> UN75. <laughs> yes. Um, so I've been working with UN75 since uh, October, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm leading on the communications and outreach and and press. Uh, but we're a small team, which is always a good thing and a bad thing. But um, mostly a good thing because I get to uh, to learn so much and do so many things um, in terms of not only communications outreach but also partnerships and and fundraising and uh, on all levels uh, so it's been very exciting mm -hmm. and to talk about the initiative it, the UN the UN is turning 75 years this year uh, and this, of course, is at a time of great challenge, including uh, one of the worst global health crises uh, in its history. And, and this calls for greater solidarity um, and international corporations to solve global challenges. And rather than having a traditional celebration, this year we have launched the world's biggest ever conversation um, on the future we want. To, to listen to people's concerns and thoughts and ideas for the future they want. So we are inviting people everywhere to um, imagine the future they want and to contribute ideas on how to make it a reality, um, you know, allowing us to building a better and more sustainable world. So it's about shaping our future together. We believe in the power of people coming together to solve problems. Um, and this initiative was launched officially in January by the Secretary General, um, and it's the largest, um, it's the largest exercise mounted by the UN to gather public opinion and to crowdsource solutions. And so, as as the UN system, of course, are very busy, you know, uniting to tackle the coronavirus, we're also scaling up efforts to um, to give voice to the to the global public. Um, and to give people the opportunity to shape its priorities. And we're doing this through, um, through a few different things. One is a survey. It's a one-minute survey that we have online at un75.online. Uh, and it's, I think, six questions. It takes only a couple of minutes. Uh, and we have this uh, survey in 53 languages to make sure that as many people as possible can, can participate. Mm -hmm. um, and through this initiative, we want to we really want to connect people to the UN. We want to reposition the UN as a listening organization um, and all this to ensure that the world builds back better um, and achieve SDGs. And um, 
the results of these, uh, the initiative and everyone that participates uh, in the survey, they will be presented to world leaders in September of this year. We don't know yet if it's going to be, uh, this might be the year where the first, you know, the first General Assembly, uh, the first digital General Assembly. We don't know that yet, but it's it's possible, um, and it's opportunity to shape something, something new and different, uh, perhaps. So this will be the results we presented to World Leaders in September, mm -hmm. and then the international community will set out a vision for the future uh, at the official commemoration of the UN's 75th uh, anniversary. So, so just to, to sum it up, um, we want this anniversary to be a turning point uh, in bringing people closer together and in bringing their hopes and fears and priorities for the future to us so that we can better serve them and future generations. And uh, yeah, it's a moment of reflect reflection uh, and of listening, of coming together as a human family, uh, you know, to discuss how we can overcome the big trends and challenges. And, and we're inviting everyone to have their say. That's incredible. That's, that's, that's great. What, um, so far, I mean, in terms of, um, you know, the younger generation and I mean, how can they get involved in, 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 in policy there? Or, I mean, it's of course getting, getting involved in, in, in the, uh, the survey, but I mean, how, how do you get involved if you want to, you know, have a voice? Yes, I mean, yes. Yeah, so, so I mean, the first thing, yes, is is to to take the survey and to to uh, have your friends take the survey. And we have this social campaign where you can take a photo of yourself with just a sign or write a note saying, "I had my say." To you know, let the world know that you had your say about your future, that you are engaged, and that you care. Um, there's also, um, we also have this online dialogues where you can bring a group together and it could be, you know, two people or 5,000 to talk about these issues more in depth um, as well. Um, and I, I will give everyone the website and we have all the information, um, of course, on our website. Um, we just actually, we just presented, um, we just released our first report um, last week with the, it's like a uh, preliminary findings. Um, and this is from um, 70,000 people in 191 countries that have taken the survey and participated in dialogue so far. Um, so it's the first, our first batch of data that we have analyzed and we were so, so excited to see, um, you know, what people were thinking. Uh, and it's pretty remarkable how similar results are across the globe. Um, and data shows that people think climate change will be the defining trend shaping our future. Um, we more, yeah, we more than double the response of any other issues. Um, and conflicts and violence came second and health risk came third. And that, of course, uh, yeah, that, that, that changed a bit since February, of course, since, since COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and it's also interesting to see that people are hopeful. I mean, the last question of, of the survey is, do you think the world will be better or worse off in 25 years? Um, and we have, a, we have some pessimists out there also, or realists, or whatever, you, however you want to see it. Um, but 
but the majority are hopeful. Um, and this is also when we look at countries like Syria and Yemen, where there have been wars for, you know, endless amount of years and doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon, right? Um, yeah. But they are hopeful. They're even more hopeful for the future. Um, and we can also see that the, that the younger generations are generally a little bit more hopeful uh, than, than the older generation. Oh, wow. That's good news. <laughs> I guess that's good news. Um, and just one more thing that was really interesting is that 95%, which is huge, um, um, you know, were, saw a need for countries to work together to manage the global trends that we are facing. Um, and this number also increased after February, after COVID-19 started, uh, you know, the upheaval caused by COVID-19 uh, around the world. Um, and I think we all understand that in our um, interdependent world where everything is connected, the fate of one community in one place is linked to the wellness of another place. And we're only as strong as our weakest health system in this case. Yes, absolutely. Well, getting to uh, the COVID crisis, how is the UN handling this? I mean, in terms of, you know, policy and, and all of that. Yes. So the UN, I mean, the UN is rallying, you know, and mobilizing all, all their actors and agencies uh, and country offices and colleagues on the ground to um, to serve and support uh, governments and communities and businesses um, in suppressing the virus and and ensuring that we support uh, leaders in socio-economic uh, recovery. Um, I would say that that the UN system is working uh, in um, around three, I mean, to respond around three dimensions. And, and the first one, of course, being support uh, the health response to suppress the transmission of the virus under the leadership of uh, the World Health Organization. And they are doing um, an amazing job. And, and also then, like I said, to mitigate the socioeconomic impact of the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, but also to help countries build back better. Um, and this is anchored in the, in the 2030 agenda and in the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. There is also... Um, a humanitarian response plan because uh, we have humanitarian workers uh, on the ground doing everything they can to respond and prevent the loss of lives. So ensuring that the aid continues to reach those in need while also um, ensuring safety measures to prevent the spread of virus. And, and this is important because, you know, every step that makes uh, the delivery easier to save lives and every measure that speeds up the provision of aid matters. And this is also why the Secretary General has called for a global ceasefire uh, and a waiving of any unilateral sanctions to enable um, COVID response in humanitarian settings. And, and we, know, we know that the most vulnerable, you know, women, children, people with disabilities, uh, the marginalized and the displaced uh, pay the highest price. Yes. And um, you know, uh, so he called for a global ceasefire. Uh, it's time to put armed uh, conflict on lockdown and focus together on on this true fight, you know, of our lives. And um, 
And yeah, this is of course a work in progress, but we have seen, you know, parties uh, put down their arms uh, in different corners of the world. Um, and that is very, very encouraging. Very encouraging. So some of the things I could go on forever, but. No, but please, I, it's, it's fascinating what's, what's happening. I mean, it's, it's, everything is just stopped in, in, in the best way. I mean, you know, in terms of climate change and, uh, I, uh, and, and like you said, the ceasefire, I mean, that, those are, that's the silver lining, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's terrible despair and we will get through this. Um, do you have any, any other insight into sort of what you think just over the next six to nine months, you know, what, what things will sort of look like just out of in, you know, out of instinct or kind of your intuition? It's really, it's really difficult to know. I think this is a situation where everyone desperately wants to know what's going to happen and when, and that's what makes it also so much more stressful that you don't know when it's going to end or, or how, or, you know, what our lives are going to look like. And we probably know that life might not go back to the way it was. Uh, maybe ever things might change. We don't know that everything and everyone is speculating, but no one, no one really knows um, at this point. I think, I mean, the social distancing will, you know, will be in place for, I think, for this year at least, even if if we start going back to work, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be the same. And it's going to, there's a lot of interesting, I mean, it's, it's horrific and it's sad and it's, and it's terrible. Um, COVID-19, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see all the data that comes out of this. I mean, cause this has affected, like you said, everything, everything in our lives uh you know uh finance but also i mean relationships and communication and how we work and um climate of course and there's going to be some really interesting statistics i think um and maybe and hopefully that will lead to some positive change um this this is the time to change things yes opportunity yes I believe that wholeheartedly as well. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Lisa, you're amazing. And thank you for all that you do. And thank you so much for, for joining me today. And I'm, I'm really honored and grateful. Thank you so much for having me. This was the highlight of my week. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> this, <my> was, <laughs> this was definitely the highlight of mine. And I, I really appreciate it and all that you do. Thank you, Andrea. Take Thank care, you. please.